You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Daniel Silva. This program originally aired in 2016. My goodness, you know, you might find this hard to believe, but when I'm at home, when I walk into a room, a band doesn't play. and Really? Don't, Don't, no. Doesn't your wife just sit there and applaud? No, I'm actually a little bit of a figure of ridicule at home, <laughs> to be honest with you. Just this crazy guy that lives down in the basement. Um, Writes all day? Yeah, they talk about me behind my back. Um, you know, he's, he's you know... Don't disturb him. Uh, don't talk. Don't try to talk to him. So, this is quite a treat for so me. So that's why you I go on book tour. More, I gotta get out more often. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are absolutely thrilled to have you here tonight, and we are going to because this is a live broadcast. We, it's not just this audience who is lucky enough to hear Daniel Silva. You get to see him, uh, but hundreds of thousands of people will be able to listen to the show on the radio broadcast. So, just a couple of notes about that before we begin. Um, one is that I will re-identify myself a couple of times, and it's not because I've suddenly been starstruck and forgotten my name, but it's for the benefit of the people who are listening back home. And there are times when I may ask you to spontaneously applaud, which, of course, is not so spontaneous, but we do need a good, long applause line, so we can actually start playing with that now. If you could summon all of the passion and energy that you have when you're sitting there way past your bedtime, reading a Gabriel Alon novel and give a big, warm round of applause for Mr. Daniel Silva. We're going to record that and send it home with him so when his family makes fun of him, he can just play it on the house speaker system. Well, we are so happy to have you with us. And, you know, I I think everybody knows this who's read these novels. Patricia mentioned how topical. So many... You've been in front of the news and the headlines on so many different things, on the fall of Mubarak, on the uh, fractured and disastrous aftermath of the Arab Spring, the rise of ISIS. So I'm wondering now, does the CIA or Homeland Security call you and say, like, what's going on out there? Uh, No, but um, I do live part-time in Washington. Um, I have friends who are senators, friends who work in the intelligence business, uh, friends who work in the administration, the NSC. And my living room in Georgetown is a little bit of an old-fashioned Georgetown salon. And we do sit around and, and discuss at length, um, over dinner, what's going on in the world? What should our policy be? Um, what are we going to do about this? What's the right move against something like ISIS? Um, so I'm, I'm really, I am enmeshed in these issues uh, a lot. Oh, sounds fantastic. I'd love to be on a fly on the wall, would you <laughs> not? Sounds great. But this, in this book, very specifically, and uh, you write in the author's notes in the beginning that you had already set a bombing in Paris. Right. You had set a terror cell in Belgium when you received, when you found out, of course, about the bombings in Paris and then later in Belgium. And, you know, there was a kind of creative crisis for you. What do you do? What did you do? What went through your head? Right. As a bit of background, I mean, I started writing this book, which came out this July. I started writing it last July. And at that time, ISIS um, had not 
gone global. It was a regional problem. It was obviously active in Iraq and Syria. It had uh, killed journalists. It had carried out attacks in neighboring Turkey. It had, of course, um, infamously murdered those uh, Coptic Christians, Egyptian Coptic Christians. But it had not yet directly attacked the West in the West. Um, and a lot of politicians and very serious terror terrorism analysts didn't think ISIS was going to, that they thought they were ISIS was more focused on what they refer to as the near enemy rather than the far enemy, the West. Um, and I thought they were out of their mind. I mean, all you had to do is listen to what ISIS was saying, read what they were publishing, um, look at the flow of, of foreign fighters from Western Europe into the caliphate and the number of those people that had been trained up and had become battle-hardened and then had gone back to Europe. And it seemed to me that it was only a matter of time. And Paris seemed the, this the obvious target to me. And I, I did think that uh, be, because Belgium was, Belgium was such a hot spot, I mean, the per capita largest supplier of jihadists uh, to the caliphate come from Belgium. And, and, no, and that cell operating in Belgium was not afraid of the Belgian security, which you know we what? found the Belgian security is. Um, we can we can talk about that at length later, but but um, they should be called Belgian insecurity. Uh, they 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 countenance the creation of an ISIS safe haven in the middle of Brussels, mm -hmm. and Paris paid the price for it. Um, but it, it was. I thought it was clear that it was going to happen, and it did happen. Um, and, and I was working in Washington at the time. Uh, I live around the corner from the French embassy, half block away. I mean, the place was under, it was an armed camp afterwards. The memorial pile of flowers grew larger mm -hmm. and larger and larger with each passing day. And I really did consider seriously just setting it aside, because my, my attack was so close to what had, had actually taken place. It was sort of tantamount to writing a a book about airliners flying into the World Trade Center before it happened. Um, and so what was I to do? Um, I set it aside, pick up a different book, try to include it in the story. No, I, then I would be you know, chasing developments. So I just wrote that interesting foreword actually saying that I'm gonna carry on as though this attack had not happened in, 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 the, in the universe inhabited by my characters. Um, because I wanted to finish the book because I wanted to say something about ISIS and the threat it poses to us, mm -hmm. and I'm glad I did. But do you sometimes feel like an oracle, you know, that you're making these pronouncements? Or no. You're predicting what's going on. I shouldn't say pronouncements. No, I, I, um, I sometimes feel as though I'm the uh, prime minister of the real world, you know? I live in the real world. I, I see what's going on. I'm not going to sugarcoat it or pretend that the threat doesn't exist. Um, or, or downplay the nature of the threat or, or, or what their ambitions are. And it's, all you have to do is listen to them. And um, I always thought that ISIS was going to be a, a much bigger threat than, than Al-Qaeda in, in the long term. Um, the great British historian and economist and philosopher Arnold Toynbee, who I quote in the book, wrote that there were two great historical sort of wagon wheels, whirlpools on the face of the earth, places on the planet that have the ability to influence events far beyond 
um, beyond them. One is, curiously enough, Afghanistan, Pakistan, that AFPAC region. And the other one, historically, he th found was Syria. Mm. And, and we would have been wise to take that, it, those words to heart when, when Syria started unraveling. And so it unraveled, ISIS moved across the border, and look what has happened in the interim. We had a, a, a coup attempt in Turkey, so Turkey's been entirely destabilized. Millions of refugees flowing into Europe. Uh, Europe has, in effect, been destabilized by that. Um, we've had terrorism attacks. I think we just, you know, it's hard for me to keep up with the news out here, but I believe a, someone with an axe attacked people in Germany yesterday which is going to inflame the domestic situation in, in Germany even more. Um, so look what, the, look what little Syria has wrought. And I'm afraid we're only at the beginning. Mm. Well, you were stationed in the Middle East, based in Cairo, I believe, as a yeah. journalist. A long time UPI. ago. The pharaohs were stooled in, in power <laughs> back then. Yes. But in, do you carry that approach as a journalist into your fiction? Sure. Um, I think that... You know, as, as I've said many times, that, that I like to write about the real world, the world around us. It's an endlessly fascinating place. Um, might someday I, I choose to write in a slightly different genre? Sure. Um, but, you know, being a journalist, having the experiences that I did have in the Middle East uh, in the 1980s, um, definitely informs my work and inspires my work. Well, you have very detailed, well-drawn characters. You know, you terrorists, members of the Vatican, intelligentsia. Uh, question here from the audience. Are all actual terrorists as well-organized and funded as portrayed in the books? Which book? The, 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 the books. I'm the sorry, books? this is what this question asks. Um, no, I don't think so. Um, and so... You know, ISIS right now, for example, is operating by a different paradigm. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, we have this debate in the media all the time. Was this attack ISIS-inspired or ISIS-directed? Uh, I think that is a distinction without a meaningful difference um, because ISIS is operating in a new kind of way utilizing the internet in a new kind of way. Um, I mean, we had a guy in Nice, and help me, I've, I've lost track of the death toll. Are we still at about 84? I, yes, I believe so. 84 people. I mean, it is incredibly difficult to kill 84 people in a, in a, with, a, with a bomb, for example. I mean, in Istanbul, which was a, surely a, a network planned and directed attack, I think they ended up killing uh, fewer than 50. That was three attackers with suicide bombs and guns. This guy killed 80 people. Uh, here in Orlando, 50 people, or 49, whatever it stands at now. So these are very, very bloody, high death toll attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, 130 in Paris. 130 in Paris. So, so these are, these are um, have, for, you know, for their, from their point of view, very high and satisfying body counts. Um, smaller cells, much more autonomy than the classic bin Laden structure, much harder for Western intelligence to detect, uh, so they have a lot more freedom 
the, 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 the operators, a lot more autonomy. Um, but just because they are out there pulling off lone wolf or wolf pack attacks does not mean that there isn't a core group of central planners in, in the caliphate that is plan, planning a, a, a mass casualty attack on the scale of 9-11 or even worse. Mm -hmm. And so I, th I think that we should assume that's happening um, and that, that sort of both are proceeding along parallel tracks. I, I there, you brought up Turkey twice, so I just wanted to ask this question from the audience, you know, realizing that we are dependent on Turkey for uh, fighting against ISIS. Uh, then after last week, the attempted coup um, geared towards, uh, let's see, his forces foiling the coup are geared towards many innocent people. What should U.S. policy toward Erdogan be? You know what? I've just been uh, deeply suspicious and wary of Erdogan from the very beginning. Um, he is an Islamist. He is autocratic, and that's putting it mildly. Uh, he kind of played footsie with, with the jihadists and ISIS for a long time. I mean, it was really rather easy for Europeans, for example, to fly to Istanbul, get a car down to the border, and walk across uh, the line into the caliphate. And the Turks were kind of doing a little bit of an ole on that, just letting them go. Uh, they finally started cracking down. And, and so in a, in a way, they were a, a little bit of a classic straddling state, you know, trying to uh, accommodate the jihadists while at the same time trying to keep it at bay, rather like Saudi Arabia. And, and yet, you know, going to the point of, in the question about our dependence on Turkey, it's extraordinary. The military, uh, uh, trying to to balance, uh, you know, Turkey's peculiar role in in Syria and the with the Kurdish, you know, the Kurds are the enemies of the the Turks, while at the same time they're our friends and allies in 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 Syria, but they're also in effect the fence, the first stop, trying to prevent this in wave of migrants coming into uh, into into Europe so it, it's it's a very complicated situation you know in the book Gabriel alone uh, conducts a mission in France it's not the first time he's done it but the first time he's done it with the French blessing I would say without doubt <laughs> and in along these lines of what you were just talking about we get this very close portrayal of intelligence agencies from various nations working together, even this very slick Jordanian named Fareed, a terrific character. A lot of, you know, a lot more badasses in great suits in that, in that kind of great Daniel Silva way. But you do that's, give us... That's the Jordanians, by the way. They are badasses in great suits. They're, they're, they're British educated. They buy their suits in London, and they, they, they are, the, having been in Jordan... I can say without question, they, they're probably the most handsome and beautiful people in the world. Um, and so I tried to, try to capture that in the character of Fareed Barakat. But, but to that, the larger point... Well, you say, I just want to use this line because it's so great. You say, it's not, you know, uh, I may be misquoting, it's not a cooperation that they prefer, but it's sort of like divorced parents of small children who work together for the greater good. Right. Is that how it goes? Absolutely. I mean, it is difficult um, to operate in, I mean, this is a global movement, and so you have to have global partnerships. Um, I portray 
the Israelis working with the French and, and the Jordanians. And, and the Israelis are a very small service, very, very capable service, but a very small service, and they really need partners to do things. Um, even the, the mighty CIA has to work with partners. It has, in, you know, incredible liaison relationships. That's the, that's the fundamental structure of the CIA is to have great liaison relationships with local services like the Jordanians, the Jordanian GID. Hope they're not listening, but they are basically an outpost of the CIA, bought, paid for, funded by the CIA, and they are, are a, you know, forward operating base for us in the Middle East. And you've got to have these partnerships, and they're not always easy. And um, I know someone uh, from the Mossad who really did help forge this, that in incredible operational partnership between the CIA and the Mossad that emerged post 9-11. You have to sort of go back in time again to, uh, to, to the Pollard affair, where we spied on, the Israelis, excuse me, spied on the United States. Um, it, it just plunged relationships between the CIA and the Mossad to a, a new low. They were never great to begin with, but they really went in the tank after that. And guys working together helped rebuild that trust. And, and they really do have to work together. CIA and MI6 obviously work very carefully together. MI6 and the Israelis, surprisingly, work very well together. It's not always perfect. You do try to hide things from... Uh, from the service that you're working with. You don't want to betray family secrets. It's never easy. Sometimes mistakes are made, um, but in this new world, it is very difficult for intelligence services to operate effectively alone. Well, you give us a lot of insight into how this works and a lot of specifics. Um, and we have a number of questions here from the audience that have to do with this idea that you know, can we assume, as readers of the series, that we really do have an accurate picture of what's going on behind the scenes in the intelligence world? You, look, my, my primary responsibility as a storyteller is to entertain you. Um, do I take l considerable license when doing that? Absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't want me to write a, a, a blueprint, dry rendering of, of, of the intelligence world. Um, are there people like Ari Shamron and Uzi Navot and Gabriel Lon? Of course there are, very much like them. Um, do, do they work with the CIA and British intelligence closely on operations? Yeah, they do. Um, does, does, do I tilt the stories to suit my needs because my hero happens to be Israeli? You bet I do. Um, and, and I have that right. Um, I, I could do anything I want to do. <laughs> Um, but that, that said, they, there has to be enough verisimilitude so that the reader has that magical moment where he or she suspends disbelief. And it, it, it happens for the writer as well. At a certain point when you, you become invested in, in the story and you believe the story that you're telling is... is actually happening or has happened. Um, I think that when I'm at my best and it's really flowing, it's not as if I'm making up a story. It's that I'm just writing down a story that I already know. Do you understand the difference? I think I do. Okay. Um, Although I've never had that kind of magical power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, when it's, that's when it's at its best. Well, you've been 
he's been with you for a long time, Gabriel alone. You know, so do you find yourself sort of, what would he think, or thinking like him, or, you know, does that ever happen to you? Do you ever approach a problem like, what would Gabriel do? Well, it's because the, star, the stories are largely told from his point of view. Yes, I do. Um, I'm, I, I don't write a first-person um, narrative. I write sort of a on-high, omnipresent narr- uh, point of view that dips into very close Gabriel point of view and very close points of view of prominent characters. Um, but he is my primary point of view. And, and let me tell you, he's a great character to have as your point of view because he, he has the greatest pair of eyes of any character I've ever written because, because of his artistic uh, talents and the way he sees the world. Um, he gives me the ability to do things on the page that I can't do with anyone else. There's a, a scene in the beginning of uh, Portrait of a Spy where he's trying to stop a suicide bombing in, in Covent Garden in London. And he knows what's about to happen and he's waiting for this, this guy to, in effect, to sign his name before he pulls his gun and takes him out. And I have him freeze the image like a still life painting and that then he has the ability to move among these frozen figures. And I tell you, I just don't think I could do that with any other character but mm-hmm. Gabriel Lon. Well, let's talk a little bit about his origins because there are a number of questions here about this, about him. Um, let's see. One, did you choose the name Gabriel alone because he is the interpreter for Daniel? Absolutely. I mean, it's one of, it's one of his roles that he gave knowledge to Daniel. Um, his Gabriel, the Archangel Gabriel, is also the messenger of God, the defender of Israel. Um, he prevented uh, Abraham from killing his son on Mount Moriah, which was a scene that was immortalized by Caravaggio, of course. Um, there's Gabriel holding the knife. Um, so he's a lifesaver. Um, he is the Prince of Fire, and I, I chose that as a title once. I gave that to, as a title to one of the novels. Um, readers of the series know that Gabriel has a, a younger counterpart named Mikhail Abramov. Mikhail is a, a Russian version of Michael, uh, Prince of uh, also an archangel. A little more rash. Yeah, well, a little. Yeah, he's he's well, he's uh, he's the Prince of uh, of Ice, um, and uh, I gave I gave Mikhail very gray eyes like ice, and so there's a lot of biblical and angel imagery within it, and I've I've hinted numerous times that, that Gabriel shares attributes of the archangel or that he might in fact be the archangel. Mm-hmm. How about the origins of the character when it came to you? It came to me yeah, um, through a classic character construction exercise and I should say from the outset that he was never supposed to be a continuing character. That's the first thing we have to establish right, right at the beginning. He was going to be a second-tier character in one novel. And, uh, you know, when I was working on the, the book, I was liking this character that I was creating. And I decided to sort of raise his game a little bit. And I wanted to give him another side. And I thought, I think I might like that side to be even more dominant than what he's done for Israeli intelligence. Because after all, anyone can, can shoot a gun. 
And um, so I was walking down the street in, in Georgetown one afternoon with my wife. And she says, don't forget, we have dinner with David Bull tonight. I stopped in my tracks and I said, that's it. I've got it. Gabriel's an art restorer. Now let me back up. Who's David Bull? He truly is one of the world's finest art restorers. And at that time, he was living around uh, the corner from us in, in Georgetown. And went to the dinner, dinner party, pulled David aside, and, and I said, listen, I've got this crazy idea. I'd like to turn uh, an Israeli assassin into an Italian art restorer. Can you help me? <laughs> and he said, sure, sure, no problem. So we, I went into the conservation lab at the National Gallery the very next day, and I walked through the cipher-protected doors, whoosh, back into this secret lab, and there's a Titian on one uh, easel and a Monet on another, and guys with their magnifying visors retouching the losses, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is it. And the, the more I learned about the craft of restoration, it seemed to me that it had many things in common with the craft of assassination. And in fact, if you look at the first book in the series, The Kill Artist, a title I loathe, by the way, it was thrust upon me, um, but I structured that book in the, as though the, the operation were actually um, a restoration of a painting. They were proceeding side by side, as they often have in the series. And um, it just was, it was serendipitous in a way, a bolt from the blue, and, and boy, was it a great idea. You know, sometimes it happens that way. It, it's just so strange, the extent to which Gabriel has become a rather prominent figure in the international restoration community. <laughs> and, and we really have to work on the details. You know, I, I've become a pretty good fictitious restorer myself. Um, I'm not bad. You ever I'm, I'm not bad on the page. Life? But, um, you know, I, I have David and others look over the material very carefully because if we make a mistake, oh my gosh, the heavens are going to open and we're going to hear about it. But um, didn't didn't I hear something about Gabriel Alon being quoted uh, a few at, years ago at a at the uh, Tate Gallery in London? <laughs> a woman, a very prominent art restorer, was giving a lecture on to to a gathering of art restorers in, at the at the Tate, and she quoted from Gabriel Alon during her lecture. And, and little old me, in, in, my first, in the first book, I wrote a line that she felt was uh, the cornerstone of great restoration. And I wrote that Gabriel's technique, he's known for the lightness of his touch. Um, and I wrote, I, I'm going to probably goof it up, but that, that he, he wanted to come and go from a painting leaving no trace of himself behind, to come and go without being seen. And she thought, and we've, anyone who knows art and has seen a painting that's been over-restored, it looks terrible. I mean, it looks like a paint by numbers and it doesn't look properly aged. There's a technique to doing it right and he's very good at it. And uh, she just thought that was the best description of, of a good restoration that she'd ever read. She used it, it, used it as a teaching tool. <laughs> well, I've got, uh, as a member of the audience asked about that, um, the question that I just asked about. And he said, as a painter, I find Gabriel the Restorer totally believable. Mm -hmm. But I just have to share a terrific line from a story about David Bull. Washington Post. Yeah. David Bull has never killed a man, but he is Daniel Silva's secret weapon. 
<laughs> it's so great. So, but you know, he makes clear that he never interferes with your prose or your plot. Certainly, no. have you ever disagreed on anything? Has he just said no? No, there's no. no way that he's would a, he's a, he consults on the on the art, and then and then sometimes when art plays a really big role in the in the actual unfolding of the plot, you know, um, he introduces me to people in the in the business it's a dirty business okay it is a dirty dirty business no art the oh, business yeah. of art um and so over the years i've had a lot of fun with this group of of characters in london with set within the london art world um Oliver Dimbleby and Jeremy Crabb and Julian Isherwood. Perhaps their my names favorite. alone are just fantastic. Yeah, they all have great names, and and, um, and so so I said, listen, I've got to do this with something. I want to push the boundaries, you know, a little bit. And in, in in the intelligence world, we have a saying: get a little chalk on your cleats, you know, play to the edge on something. And so he helps me play to the edge and and um, uh, keep it keep it uh, keep it in play. You're listening to a conversation with Daniel Silva recorded live at the historic Portsmouth Music Hall for writers on a New England stage. Um, well, you're, you're talking about something that you get is just terrific access. And, and part of what I understand about the books is that you really want to walk the streets. You want to be in the places where Gabriel is and tell the story from that perspective. A lot of research, a lot of historical research. I think I've learned a lot of history in these books. So... How do you decide? I mean, you, you're under a lot of pressure to deliver a book a year. How do you, poor thing, decide Venice, Rome, you know, where do I go this time? What, what do you decide you have to do and what do you just let go? Um, I guess I, when, when I was really deep into the early beginnings of the series in Gabriel, I, I spent a lot of time in Italy, poor me. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Venice, just letting that that city and I mean that's where he served his apprentice. He's done a lot of restorations there. Um, I've, I do spend a lot of time at the Vatican. I have really good friends at the Vatican. I was just there last summer for an extended stay. Um, I have been in the Vatican labs downstairs in the in the, in the uh, Yep, we have uh, we. I'm so close to them. I think of we. I actually do support the the Vatican museums. Um, I'm a patron of the Vatican museums, and so I, I, I do think of it as we. Um, but they have a lovely set of labs down there. I walked in there one day, and uh, I passed this examination table. My eye goes like this. I was like, is that? And it, it, they have this unfinished Leonardo that they have there. And uh, a restorer was going to do some work on Mona Lisa, uh, from, so this person from the Louvre wanted to come and look at this Leonardo to compare a little something to see just to, before they started tinkering with uh, the Mona Lisa. And so th this Leonardo panel was just lying there. And, and they said, they looked at me and they said, do you want to pick it up? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, yeah. So there I was holding uh, Leonardo in my hands. I probably shouldn't tell that story. I'm going to oh. get someone in trouble. <laughs> Um, so, but I, I have spent, a, um, I do try to, when I really need to really, really capture a place, um, Moscow Rules was a book that I, that I spent a lot of time 
living out of a suitcase. I was in Russia for as long as my visa would allow me to stay there. Um, and uh, stayed in the, uh, it has a, that book has a wonderful opening sequence. I'm very proud of that opening sequence and uh, stayed in this lovely hotel in, in Courcheval and these uh, concierges gave me a little glimpse behind the curtain of what it's like when all the oligarchs come to town in the winter time and I repaid them by turning them into characters in, in the novel. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I, I do only work at home in my own office. I find it very, very difficult to write outside my office. And I do sometimes have to get out of my office and, and get out and, and actually talk to people uh, because I do spend the vast majority of my time writing in, I spend more time in Gabriel's world than I do in this world, that's for sure. How do you keep in touch with this world then when you're working? As little as possible. Uh, I, have, I have a phone on my desk that I turn the ringer off. I keep my iPhone in an, another room, another floor, as far away as possible. Um, I, I disable the email on the computer I find distractions to be in incredibly difficult. I don't want to sound like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, but it does take, every time I'm interrupted, it takes five or 10 minutes to get back to where I was. And so I, I find it uh, imperative to just really shut out the outside world. And so I got, I got triple pane glass windows and I, I need it really quiet. Mm. Yeah. And that's a lot of pressure to deliver a book a year. Does it, does it feel that way to you? Do you ever want to stretch out and write something else, or could you? Um, yes, I could. And yes, I, yes, I do want to. Um, and every time I say that, fans of the series start trembling. <laughs> and and, and um, I, I, I heard the announcement backstage, we know that the book is number one. Mm -hmm. And I'm very pleased about the performance and I'll give you a little... A little Debuted at number one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. And the, the sales figures for this book um, are rather like the, the famous hockey stick graph in, the, in uh, Al Gore's movie about global warming. The book, my series has been going like this, steady rise like this, and this book just went straight like this. Um, and so anyone who would even consider stopping to write a series like that either is just com clinically insane or, or congenitally stupid or a combination of both. Um, and so I, I intend to, to, to forge on with the series, but I do want to write other things. And at, at my age, I'm not going to say what my age is, but I, I feel that I may be at the halfway point of my career. I'm in, I'm in, good physical health, I don't smoke or drink, um, I'm gonna be at this for a while. I, and it, so the no, notion of writing Gabriel Lawn for 20, 25 years, that's not gonna happen. Um, and, but I, I do feel an obligation to my fans, because I have passionate fans, and I, I, I guard them jealously, and I'm indebted to them, and I love them, each and every one of them, to, to continue writing Gabriel Lawn books. And so I come to the conclusion that the only way for me to write something else is to actually publish two books a year. Um, wow. And that could happen sooner rather than later. So when you're, you're on book tour now, mm -hmm. the book has just come out, mm -hmm. are you thinking, are you scheming the next book already or is it already started? Oh, it's already started. 
You started in March when, or whenever it goes. I started. I know. I finished. Uh, I finished basically all the work on um, the Black Widow right around May twentieth or twenty fifth. I'd have to look at my calendar. The modern printing techniques allow us to push our deadlines. In the old days, you know, back in when dinosaurs roamed the earth, when I started, um, we had to to finish the book up and get them shipped much further out. Now we're very, very quick at printing books and bringing them into the market. So we can do it much closer to the deadline. I, I, I work on a, I walk a tight rope every year. Mm -hmm. um, but, but as soon as I finished this book, I literally started the next day on the next book. Wow. Jeez. Um, well, we're very glad about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what I do. It's what, thank you. It, it's, it's what I am. It's who I am. It's what I do. Uh, I just am happiest when I'm working on something. I don't think writers should really take long breaks. It's, it's, it's okay if you're actually thinking about something, but I've never really been comfortable letting the fields go completely fallow, and I actually get really antsy if I'm not working on something. Hmm. Well, we have a number of questions here about what will happen to Gabriel? Like, uh, you know, he's been for some time fighting becoming the head of the office. Um, well, I can that answer that job. right now. We can, he, he becomes the head of the office at the end of this book. No, no spoilers, you know. Big surprise, Gabriel survives this one. <laughs> um, and he is now the chief of the office. But someone here says he's not a desk person. No, he's not a desk person. <laughs> um, and Ari Shamron says to him in this, in this book that... Um, I expect you to walk and chew gum at the same time, meaning it, he, he wants him to be an operational chief. And so I think that he's going to feel exactly the way he, he has felt on, on the page in the last, last two or three books. Well, People, readers will discern almost no difference. Well, supposedly... Except he has to attend cabinet meetings. Oh, keep going. And he's not... He's not happy about having to attend cabinet meetings and sit in a room full of politicians. Who would be? Um, but, but that's going to be part of his uh, weekly routine. And the prime minister can call him anytime he wants. And um, prime ministers, I have learned, because I've actually had a, a relationship with a couple of them in Israel, most of them come from military backgrounds, first of all. Uh, Netanyahu was a special forces soldier like his brother Yonatan who was killed at Entebbe. They know this sort of stuff inside and out. And, and unlike our president, an Israeli prime minister will sit with the chief and maybe the operational chief and go over every single operational detail um, of, of a major Mossad operation. And, and they know these things inside and out. So it's going to give me a lot of... Um, interesting things to play with in the future. Well, he is supposed to take this desk job, but he gets called back into the field in the Black Widow. Right. What, he, what, calls, what draws him back? I'm going to be careful of that because it's not in the flap copy and it's not made it into any reviews um, in pu published material. So, but there is an attack in Paris and Gabriel knows one of the victims and French intelligence is aware of the fact that he knows one of the victims because one of the victims bequeaths to him something of great value. And this forges this unlikely bond between, between uh, Gabriel and French intelligence. And it is unlikely because Gabriel, let's face it, has done some really naughty things on French soil over the years. 
Uh, he killed Ivan. He killed Zizi. He and, and, and uh, Christopher Keller tore up the place looking for Madeline Hart and the English girl. Um, he killed the father and son, Al Khalifa. Um, the Garda Leon blew up while he was inside it. So he's got a checkered past. They've got to sort of get past before they can uh, start to operate. And one of the things I explored in this relationship is, is how close French-Israeli ties were at one time. In, the, in the Israel's infancy, it was really France that it was, it was Israel's closest Western ally, especially when it came to military and security issues. Um, you know, the French supplied the Israeli Air Force. They supplied them all kinds of weapons. They, in effect, supplied them with necessary components to give Israel a nuclear arsenal. Oh, wait, we're not supposed to say that. We don't have a nuclear arsenal. Israel doesn't have a <laughs> nuclear arsenal. Sorry. Erase <laughs> um, And so the relationship was very, very close. And then France got entangled in Algeria. Uh, France wanted to improve its relations with the Arab world after the war in Algeria. And when the Six-Day War erupted in 1967, France, in effect, sided with the Arabs. And, and that, was, that was it. And so it's been a long way back. Um, and it's a, very, it's a very tense relationship in real life between Israeli intelligence and French intelligence for the very simple reason that France has always been, as I portrayed in the series, an important operational theater. Everyone is there. Um, everyone was there in the 70s. Lots of terrorists, lots of Palestinians. And Israel was, in effect, forced to operate in France and, and carry out, uh, do things in France um, that made the French security service and the French government angry. Um, and um, I guess that, that's too bad, but, but it, it happened. Um, and so relations are fraught, as we say. And the other thing that's going on is that, look, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in France. Mm -hmm. I'm not breaking any news here. It's started this new wave in around 2000. Um, it has its peaks and valleys. It sort of rises and, and, and spikes and falls in relation to what's going on in the Middle East. If there's a flare-up in Gaza, acts of anti-Semitism spike in, in France, but um, suffice it to say that there are several thousand, many thousands of acts of anti-Semitism committed in France each year, ranging from property damage to graffiti to vandalized gravestones to physical attacks, in some cases murder. And each year, thousands and thousands and thousands of French Jews, <coughs> excuse me, are packing their bags and moving to Israel. And I, I pose an interesting question at the end of this novel, in the afterword. I, I wonder, can anyone name any other religious or ethnic minority that is fleeing Western Europe? And the answer is quite obviously no. In fact, most, I mean, these French Jews who are leaving are swimming against the tide because hundreds of thousands of people from the Middle East are trying to get to Western Europe and they are deciding to take their chances in Israel instead uh, because it, the situation has become that bad in France for the, for the Jews. Um, and I think that in a very real sense, they were the canaries in the coal mine. They were under pressure. Let's just say something, let's get something straight. 
yes, there is some good old-fashioned France, uh, French anti-Semitism at work. But the over, overwhelming majority of these <clears throat> attacks emanated from the Muslim community. And for a long time, for reasons of multiculturalism and political correctness and, and social cohesion and social peace, I think the French government was very reluctant to take on the problem head on. And they allowed it to fester. And lo and behold, many of the same people who were in effect picking on the Jews for the last decade and a half are now coming for the, for the rest of the French. And I, I really think that, that the, the Jews were truly the canaries in the coal mine. They came for them first. Well, there is a, f a fascinating character in this novel that you introduce. A young, uh, her family left France Correct. to move to Israel. She's a doctor. Um, what do you want to reveal to her about us? <clears throat> well, about her name spoiling? is Natalie Mizrahi. Uh, she is an emergency room doctor uh, at Hadassah Medical Center. As I say, and I spent a couple of days going for, through that hospital end to end, top to bottom, um, in preparation for, for writing her character. I can tell you that Hadassah is prepared for the, for the end times, for, for, the, for the apocalypse. They have, it's in a very rocky valley uh, in West Jerusalem. They have gone four or five layers down into the ground to build operating theaters that are safe from chemical and nuclear attack, that I got to go down into these space-age operating theaters, extraordinary places. Um, and so that sort of serves as a, the backdrop for this woman. It's a remarkable place in that it's the level one trauma center in Israel, and it cares for both Arabs and Jews. And on the, on the very day that I was there, the, it was really when this stabbing a vehicular assault wave was really starting up. And um, you'll see a little description of it in that chapter, but, but um, they had a situation where a guy started stabbing people um, with uh, a knife, and then a, a, a passerby Israeli citizen tried to stop him and, and was grappling with him and he had a gun the Israeli police arrive on the scene they don't know who's who who has the gun what's going on they shoot both of them so the poor guy who intervenes gets gets shot um, and here they are in the op the trauma center side by side on gurneys with teams of Hadassah doctors trying to save the the attempted terrorist, the killer, the murderer, with the same compassion that they are to the Israeli who intervene. It was extraordinary. Um, so I really tried to capture that. But she is a, a very skilled doctor who has a, a important asset that she's a fluent, fluent Arab speaker. Uh, she's also, as her name would, would um, imply, she's a Sephardic Jew. Um, so she's quite Arab in appearance. And so we turned her into, in effect, a black widow. And we put her through some serious retraining and reprogramming and take this nice Jewish doctor from Hadassah and turn her into a Palestinian who wants to uh, join ISIS. That was a fascinating thing to read. Yeah. You know, this woman with a strong Jewish identity. Yeah. She, see her get she gets recruited, not coerced. <laughs> Let's make that clear. A little coercion. Um, a little coercion. But she's getting, she gets 
uh, Islamic studies. She gets a background, you know, as a family, you know, as a member of a family whose Palestinian family was disabused of their land. Um, she learns that about the Zionist myth, you know. So you are, in effect, writing about the process of endowing somebody with a hatred or a rationale for wanting to destroy Israel. And what was that like for you as an intellectual exercise, writing that? Well, I, I mean, I've, I've been writing and think about, thinking about these issues for a long time. It came to me as second nature. Um, I've read deeply of the Palestinian narrative. Um, I've read their poetry. I've, 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 I've been studying them for 30 years. Um, and it was an interesting exercise, and it, it um, allowed me to write this book at many different levels. There's a lot of things going on within, within the book. Um, exploring the role, quietly, softly, that, that the existence of a Jewish state in the heart of the Middle East, what, 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 what has that done to the region? You know, what, is, it, is, it, is it a source of, of all the problems? Um, and it just, it gave me a, an arena in, in which to uh, address a number of, of very serious issues with that's what's going on in the region. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to a conversation with Daniel Silva, recorded live at the Historic Theater at the Portsmouth Music Hall for writers on a New England stage. Well, there's also this process of getting her to the target, which, you know, involves, uh, you know, dark web uh, contacts, different locations like, like you do in, in the novels. Um, how do you get insight into that, Daniel Silva? How do you know what's happening? Um, I, I read a great deal. I talk to a lot of people. Um, Can I in include a similar question? Sure. I'm sorry, from the audience. Yeah, yeah. How did you find out about the safe house and Hopewell Road in Plains, Virginia? You know, the, the, how, do you, how do you get <laughs> Well, these? let me answer that with that. That, that. that doesn't exist. That's my friend's house. Okay, the house where Gabriel lived in Cornwall, just for the record, he really doesn't exist. I, 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 I learned much to my horror, I was horrified and saddened and apologetic that Gabriel's house on Narcus Street, his apartment house, is now a stop on at least one guided tour of, of Jerusalem. And, and people are, buses are going by, and they're saying, this is where Gabriel Lana, da, 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 da. I wanted to go door to door on Narcus Street and apologize. Now, why does Gabriel Lon live on Narcus Street? Because my friend, who's a professor at Hebrew University, he lives on Narcus Street, and I use his apartment as Gabriel's apartment. Um, so no, there is not a CIA safe house that I know of in the Plains, Virginia. Um, the house where Gabriel lived in Cornwall is, is um, owned by a, a, a friend of mine. Um, Timothy Peel was just a little boy who lived next door who was waiting for us when we came home sailing one day. A little kid with his hand in the air, and I turned him into this uh, character that has resonated throughout the years. I, I don't know why. Um, so if you come meet Daniel Silva after the show tonight... You might make a real impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look out. Um, I, I say in the, in the um, afterward, you know, that um, I have a friend who lives in the, in the historic Israeli uh, moshav or agricultural community of Nahalal. I turned his house into a training facility. Um, I have a friend who lives in um, 
in the Tel Aviv suburb, and I've turned his house into Uzi Navot's house. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the way it works. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I got you off track from I that. I did, that but so so the, the the but the first part of the question was, you know, I I, I talk to people, I I uh, gather as much information as I can, I get it as realistic as I can, and then I I let my imagination take over. And I tell you, I think I've become pretty. I've become a pretty good operational planner. A, a, a few years ago, um, a bunch of guys from the Mossad came to my house to watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> Sounds like a, like an old Yiddish joke, right? <laughs> oh, um, and so one of the one of the Mossad guys says, hey, "I want to see your office. I want to see where you work." So I said, "Okay." So I took him downstairs, and um, walks over to my bookshelf. And he pulls the defector off the shelf. Um, he says, you know, there's a scene in this novel where you do blah, 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 blah. And what he was saying was there's a scene where there's a woman in Russia that we need to talk to in a secure way where the Russian security service won't be listening. And so we've got to get her on neutral ground so we can talk to her. And this woman works in the travel industry. And so what does Gabriel and his team do? They create a fake travel conference in Italy, stage it at a glamorous hotel on Lake Como, and invite this woman, issue an invitation to this woman who works at this travel agency in Moscow to attend the conference. And she gets permission and she attends the conference. We grab her and talk to her. He said, I read this scene. I said, if we had a problem like this, we would have done it exactly the same way. Um, and so, you know, the imagination is a, is a powerful thing and, and the ability, the tricks of the trade that, that I've learned along the way, how to, how to tell a story. Um, I'm, I'm just pretty good at fooling you. I really am. (laughs) The question here about does Gabriel alone have any serious character flaws, which jeopardizes critical mission? Um, what I see is, is a divided soul, you know, not just the artist and the spy, but this is a man who is deeply haunted right. by, uh, you know, he, he's, he reflects, you know, many times on, you know, like, I've made a deal uh, to be a murderer. Right. And, um, well, no, no, not a murderer. He would quibble with the use of that word. He said a monster and a murderer, I thought it was, but he I He said, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a monster. You might, I, I wrote a I thought a rather haunting passage. Every time I read it, it just moved me, where he's looking at his newborn children. And in his home, I've referred to it often, is a painting that his first wife painted when he came back from Operation Wrath of God in 1975 after being out of Israel for three years hunting down Black September members. And he doesn't even look like himself. He looks like he's just wasted. Um, And he's trying to decide in this moment, what am I going to tell my kids about who I am, what I do? And there are a lot of people in Israel who have to make that decision, what to tell their children about the things that they've done. Um, It is a tough neighborhood, and the only way that it survives is to have people like Gabriel out there at the sharp end of the the spear. Um, And as someone who has lost loved ones, um, as someone who is seen the effects of a bomb, uh, it, it just really pisses him off. And, and so if he, has a, if he has a character flaw, 
it is that he does not like to see a massacre of innocent people. And, and it, he will sometimes do reckless things, put himself in, in danger to stop it, uh, the next one. That is a beautiful passage because he's looking at his children and thinking, this is why I do this. Right. Well, you've written through uh, since two, 2000 for the Alon novels through many different presidential uh, administrations. We know that President Clinton oh, read no. your books. Oh, no. We um, are I, saw that Newt, ice. I saw that Newt Gingrich was a fan. Yep. But you know you have friends and readers, I'm sure, with a lot of influence inside of the intelligence community, inside of the administration. And I'm wondering, oh, true. you know, is this book a warning? Are you looking for an outcome? Are you looking for a response? No, not, not a warning. Um, but um, look, I think that the current administration, if given the chance, um, if they could rewind the tape, I think they would have made some different decisions along the way. Um, I think that in hindsight, it would have been better to leave a residual force of about five to 10,000 American troops in Iraq. Um, it would have been better to be a little more proactive in the early days of, of the Syrian civil war. Um, Arnold Toynbee would have advised us to to be careful if, if Syria spins out of control. Um, but we, this president wanted to put the Middle East in, in his rearview mirror and conduct the Asian pivot and no more, no more wars and no more American boots in, on the ground in the Middle East. Um, all noble wishes, okay? We've been at war for a very long time. Um, and th those were, in hindsight, Mistakes. They were mistakes. They were miscalculations. And then I think, I think you'd do anything to take back that phrase, the JV team. Uh, I do. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, that, that reference he called the, the ISIS the JV team. You know, and maybe he was trying to belittle them, but I think that, that those words came back to bite him. And I think he wishes he could take that back. And he also said that ISIS was contained on the very day before they attacked Paris. Um, and I think that the administration overlearned the lessons of Iraq when it came to Syria and underlearned the lessons of Iraq when it came to Libya. And so we were too cautious in Syria and now we have complete and utter chaos. So we were too aggressive in Libya. So we, you know, decapitated the regime, the regime, Gaddafi dies, and now we have a complete and utter disaster on our hands in Libya. And by the way, a very active, um, ISIS network of several thousand members there in Libya. Um, and so, you know, we might long to, to uh, leave the Middle East, to put the Middle East in, in our rearview mirror and turn to other issues, but I'm afraid that you, you can't leave the Middle East because the Middle East is going to follow you home. And I do believe that it is better for us to be active there and working against them out there rather than trying to harden every target here in America and trying to catch him at the last possible second. It just, you're gonna get hurt in the long run. You're gonna get hurt. We've gotten hurt a couple of times. Um, and uh, so when it comes to ISIS, you know, yes, we are squeezing them. Um, they are slowly losing territory, but you know, John Brenner said the other day that, that while they are losing territory, we have done absolutely nothing to degrade their ability to carry out terrorism operations. And I think it's helpful to think of 
the international jihadist movement is rather like a water balloon. And, you know, when, if you squeeze a water balloon, it often doesn't break. It just bulges out someplace else. And that's what's going to happen with ISIS. It's, if, if they lose the caliphate, which they might, but if they lose all the lands of the caliphate, it's probably going to morph into something like a, more like Al-Qaeda and with many, many thousands of adherents and followers. Well, we are out of time, but I want to end on a more positive note. Okay. <laughs> I mean, everybody here, I'm sure you're here because you love Gabriel Alon. And, you know, uh, maybe the neighbors at 16 Narca Street aside, we love him. We're happy he's here. What, what has he brought to you? Uh, you know, the personal relationships that I have formed because of the character, the friendships that I have because of the character, um, are just very, very special to me. And, you know, when you write about Israel, which was not my intention, you know, it wasn't my intention. I thought it was going to be very difficult to make an Israeli character a truly mass market character. I mean, no one is more surprised every year when Gabriel Lon ends up at number one on the bestseller list than I am, because I didn't think it was possible. Um, and uh, the, the material is f infused with such a historical um, fire that um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I've had this opportunity to wrestle with it for a few years. Um, I'm not sure how long I'll continue to wrestle with it, but I have, it is my passion. I love the history and the politics in the Middle East. I love art. I'm a, I'm a Holocaust historian and I'm a member of the, of the United States Holocaust Council, Muse uh, Museum Council. And so, the, 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 in its own way, for me, the Gabriel Lawn series allows me to indulge all my passions. And it's a guilty pleasure for me to write it. And I'm just pleased that people actually like to read it. Well, before we end, I want to read and thank a couple of people who put together this production. The Music Hall executive producer is Patricia Lynch. The Music Hall producer, Margaret Talcott. NHPR's president, Betsy Gardella. Our broadcast producer tonight, Molly Donahue. NHPR's digital producer, Sarah Plord. The Music Hall production manager, Jana Morris. The Music Hall live sound and recording engineer, Ian Martin. Music Hall director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought sounded fantastic tonight. And you can see live stage photography of this event from Clear Eye Photo that will be posted in just a couple of days. But the most important person to thank tonight, Daniel Silva, please join me in thanking him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.